Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. We uh, thank you for this time that we have to gather here uh, to worship you, uh, to learn about Christ. And Father, we pray that you would help us with this passage. This is this is one that can be difficult, especially for the individual who may be auditing Christianity or checking things out or visiting for the first day. This uh, sort of touches on some issues that um, that are foreign, that are that are kind of a, just strange if you are an outsider looking in. Uh, but for those of us who know Jesus and have experienced him, these these verses um, are filled with hope and and conviction and. Uh, encouragement to run our race well. And so, Father, I pray that through your word and by your spirit, that you would meet each individual that's here, Lord, where they're at, uh, help them to have their questions answered, convict and prompt us to move closer to you. Father, we are thankful that you are a good father and that you love us and that you care for us deeply. Uh, Help us to respond to you in a way that is worthy. And it's in Christ's good name I pray. Amen. All right, first John chapter two, verse twenty-eight. Now little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has his hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. And Father, we do thank you uh, again for this this day. We thank you, Lord, um, for your word. We ask that you would help us now. In Christ's good name, we pray. Amen. So I think this passage contains some things that can be sort of tricky, and it's very easy for us to, I I think, to, to highlight the, the wrong aspect. Um, you guys, you guys all know I've been taking Spanish lessons. It's, I'm, I'm a little bit obsessed with, with meeting with my Spanish teacher and every now and, uh, or Spanish teachers plural. And every now and again, I bring in a new one just to kind of meet with them to practice from the get go. And I did that this week to a new teacher and I was kind of explaining our family dynamics and how my wife grew up in Spain and, and then she talked to Anna for a little bit and she's like, well, well, why doesn't your wife just teach you? And I'm like, you know, I, so I started to talk to her, and I was like, you know, when we first got married, Anna would get, like, super frustrated. And, and I said, you know, and I'm talking, I'm like, so I have to, my very limited words, so I have to really think about how to enter into what I want to say when you're a guy like me, and you have to say a whole bunch of stuff, and you have a whole lot of words in English. And so I'm like, well, you know in Sevilla how there's two soccer teams, there's one team, and she's like, yes. I'm like, that's Sevilla FC. That's the majority of the family's team. That then Anna's little brother, he's the guy that always likes to go against the grain. He likes the other team. And the, and I'm like, so when I say that name of that team, I say it, I'm embarrassed to even say it here, so I'm not going to do it. And I said it to the lady, and the lady immediately corrected me. And I said, I know. 
I emphasize the wrong part of it, and I just can't, for the life of me, I can't, I'm a gringo, I can't, for the life of me, say it the right way. And then the three times following, she kept correcting me. I'm like, see what you're doing? That's what my wife did. And when you do it, it's okay, but when she does it, it's like, I said it. She says, say it this way. I'm like, say it again. I'm like, I said it that way. She's like, no, you did it. I'm like, I don't hear it. (laughs) And I bring this up because I think we come into this and we start talking about the return of Christ. And while this passage talks about the return of Christ, I don't think that this passage is so much about the return of Christ. I think it's about sort of how we live in light of this reality. But I think a lot of times Christians sort of emphasize the wrong part of the, this whole section, and they start chasing things. And so as we enter into this passage, I thought it would be good to sort of step back just a second, just to, to introduce who's writing this letter, what's his history, uh, why is he speaking the way he's speaking. And so to do that, we would have to go back to Acts chapter 1. And so the author of First John is the Apostle John. The Apostle John, during the life of Jesus, was one of the earliest of the, like the earliest, the youngest of the disciples. Peter was the oldest. And so you have this very young guy who knew Jesus really well. And in Acts, we've gone through sort of the life of Jesus in the Gospels. And there's a little bit of overlap historically. So the Gospels take us to Jesus's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. The letter of Acts sort of begins with sort of the life following the resurrection of Christ and then his ascension. And so in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, in this story that Luke is writing, John the Apostle, the author of today's section, he is there for this. And so we read, so when they had come together, the disciples and Jesus, they were asking him, that's Jesus, saying, Lord is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? So Jesus has been executed. They saw his death. They knew he was dead. They touched him. They buried him. They put him there. Then he rose from the grave, and then they all saw him, touched him, walked with him. Their minds were blown away, and then they had 40 days with him. And then we come to this point, and they're like, is this where we're going to learn about your work with Israel, that, that Israel's finally going to overthrow Rome, that, that you're going to begin to do something new. And so this is the question they have for him. And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. So he says, it's not for you to know. This is for the Father to know. Jesus, even in this, is saying, in some ways, I'm shielded from this. And he says, you don't need to be worried about these things. Don't be worried about the timing, the events, the dates. It's, this is not for you to worry about. But what he says to them, but, what, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So, so here the disciples are. They ask their question. Jesus said, this isn't that don't, you're, you're asking the wrong questions. Know that a time future from this point, the Holy Spirit is going to come. And, and the Holy Spirit, that he's going to indwell you, and he's going to give you power to basically be a light into the world, and you're going to go out. And he sort of gives them this, this future marching order. And then we're told after he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on. A cloud received him out of their sight. Now, admittedly, this, is, this sounds, I don't want to say crazy. This, this sounds absolutely, I've, like, has anybody experienced this? No. 
Like, so I think it's okay to acknowledge this is a supernatural thing that is not sort of like repeatable, like on a daily basis. And so I'm imagining the disciples there talking to Jesus. And then all of a sudden he starts floating up, you know, like I, I don't like, he doesn't have jetpacks on. He doesn't have like, he's just kind of going up. And I imagine like, I don't want to speak for you all, but I think I'd be a little freaked out. Like, did somebody grab him like a balloon, you know, that a kid has tied onto their thing? Like, hey, hey, hey like, get, like, get back here. Like, I'm, like I, I guess that's the closest thing I can possibly imagine is when I was in the military and in a wind tunnel where you learn how to skydive, there's a big fan that blows up and you float away and there's an instructor there that tries to control you to kind of make sure you're stable. And so he goes up, he, he, he's going up, and then all of a sudden a cloud appears and he's kind of like, swallowed up in a cloud. And this is like, I just imagine silence stunned, like, well, what's going to happen next? They're just they're, like, we've all been there when we see a balloon get away and you try to watch it for as far as you can and eventually you lose sight of it. And here, like wherever it was, we don't, we, all we have is that a cloud received them out of their sight. And there they are, gazing intently into the sky while he was going. And behold, two men in white, Two men in white clothing stood beside them. So all of a sudden, they're looking at the, then there's two guys, like somewhere in their midst, by their sides. I don't exactly know. All I have is they're standing behind, beside them. And they also said, so the two guys standing next to the disciples who are looking up in the clouds trying to figure out what in the world just happened. These poor guys over the last two months have been sort of turned every, situ- every which way. Their whole world has been flipped upside down. Now they're sitting there going, okay, we just wrapped our minds around the fact that Jesus was killed and then he rose from the dead. Now we're having to try to figure out his just floating away on us. Like he, uh, and then these two guys appear and they're saying, hey, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up in the sky? That's a silly question in my opinion. Like, like what, what do you do when your friend just floats away? Like I, and then they continue to give insight and they say, this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come just in the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And so it'll be like DVR or something, you know? It's like, okay, like, so there, these angels, are, I'm assuming, are tell them, like, you just saw him go up, received by the cloud, and the same way you saw that, he's going to return. So cloud will appear, I guess, and then all of a sudden Jesus will come back down. Can you imagine how this would affect you for the rest of your life? Like, it transformed the apostles' lives. Like, these guys who were so fearful of people and so, I mean, Peter denying Jesus three times that night when he was arrested. Now all of these guys have boldness and they go about their lives proclaiming the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So much so that all of them gave their lives. Really, the apostle John, you like, you can't quite include him in those people who were executed for their faith. But he kind of was, except the executioner failed. They tried to boil him alive. And they failed, he survived. And because Nero was so superstitious that if you survived that, then it was kind of like, well, hands off. Because the gods must be on your side. And so then they just shipped him out to an island to, to live the rest of his days. But, but he surrendered all to Jesus. And so it's this guy who witnessed this 
firsthand account, if we go back to the beginning of 1 John, and John says, listen, I saw him, I touched him, but he uses the we, speaking for all of the apostles. We walked with him, we touched him, we felt him. We, like, we are not making this stuff up. And so this individual who witnessed all of this, this is where we pick up in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. He says, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him at shame at his coming. And so we have this sort of picture. The first thing we get is continuation from last week, this abiding. I think in the, the previous like four verses, this word abide appears just out of my memory is something like five or six times. Um, and he refers to them now little children. John is now an old man. He sees the church as, as his little spiritual children, this love, like he's a father or a grandfather pulling them as, alongside his, his like uh, recliner chair in front of the TV and saying, kids, come listen to me. This is, this is how you live your life. Abide in him. And last week I used the picture. This is sort of the, the picture in my mind is as, as a parent, when you take your, your children to like, uh, you know, I, I, I got to use the Padres as an illustration today because we're so cheering, or at least my, I'm cheering for them. Um, I know Larry is. There's a couple of us that care about it right now. And, uh, but like when you take your, like when I take my little boys down to Petco Park on like the couple times a year that we go, and there's so many people like coming from Valley Center to the city, it's just mayhem. And it's like before we go, it's like, all right, guys, let's get the Sharpie out. We're going to put my cell phone number on your belly. We're going to like tattoo you. Like, so, so we know like that you can't rip it off your wrist. You can't, you, like if they get lost, somebody's going to be able to get a hold of me. And it's like, boys, hold my hands. Stay with me. And I have both of them just like as we're walking through the crowds, pulling them behind me. And, uh, and this is sort of the image. Stay with me, stay with me, hold my hand, abide in me, because the world out there is really dangerous. And the only place that you can guarantee yourself safety is by abiding with Jesus, holding his hand, staying close to him in the midst of the trials. Now, little children, abide, abide in him. So that key phrase, this sort of then explains, why is he telling you to stay close to Jesus? Stay close to him so that when he appears, now we have to go back in our minds, just that mental picture of Acts chapter one. Those two guys standing in the apostles, next to the apostles. Why are you guys looking at this guy? You know, he's going to come back just in the way he left. Get about the business of the things that he told you to do. But he says that he is going to appear. We want to abide with him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him at shame at his coming. So I love this that like, we, we can't get around this. John is actively anticipating the return of Christ. He is act, like his life is being shaped by that sort of command that he received at this point. It's something like, I'm just sort of throwing this off the top of my mind. I haven't done the math. That's on my notes. But I'm thinking something like 30, 40 years earlier when Jesus left. He was a young man when Jesus departed. Now he's an old man. It might even be like 60 years. Like he's anticipating the return of Jesus, but he's continuing about the business. And he says, abide with him so that when he appears, and maybe at this stage in John's life, he's probably going, well, I'm probably going to die before he returns but whether I die or he returns, it's the, it's the net result is the same. That he as an individual is standing before his Lord. 
And so this idea of abiding, walking with Jesus, and as we walk and abide with Jesus, there's assurance, confidence that when he appears, that he won't shrink away in shame. And I do think that this points to the reality that we see that uh, the Bible does speak about carnal Christians. There are those who are indeed saved, who are walking according to the flesh. And the picture is, is that when Jesus appears, there's going to be a, uh-oh, did you have to come back right now? This is Friday night. I was more expecting a Sunday morning to return. Like, if you came back Sunday morning, it would have been much better for me, Jesus. But Friday night, this is like dollar beer night. And I'm like, you know, like, I, and it's not like, I, you know, I don't, like, I believe in the assurance of salvation. Like, we're not unsaved based on our works. We're saved, like, by our relationship with Christ. And John is saying, like, abide with him so that when he appears, you can just be like, you know, what I'm, what I'm imagining is this sort of this relationship like this. You have intimacy with him in this life. You have a relationship where you're communicating with him throughout the day. And if you're going through your day and you're like, Lord, just, I'm really stressed out about this. Would you help me? You're communicating with him. You're reading your word. And then all of a sudden the Lord appears and it's like what you can't see physically, suddenly there he is. And it's like, oh, hey, you're right there. Like, it gives me goosebumps. It's like talking to your father in the dark, and you can't see him, but you know his voice, and all of a sudden, lights pop on. It's like, oh, man, I was imagining something totally different. That's what you look like. That's who you are. And I think that John's point throughout this passage is the reality of that then, when we stand before our creator, it should affect the now. Like, how we live our lives should be affected by that future reality that you're either going to stand before him when you die or his, his, his return. Verse 29, he says, Now if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Now, i got to give you guys two Greek words. There's oida and there's gnosko. Oida, gnosko. There won't be a pop quiz. But it's, it's, as we work through this passage, it's kind of important that we know these two Greek words because these two words are translated in English as to know, knowledge. But they're vastly different. So oida is an absolute knowledge. Like, you know absolutely that this is a truth. Um, gnosko is an, an experiential knowledge. Not in my note, notes, but free of charge. Or uh, <laughs> um, Whenever I think about these two words, I think of an experience that I had since it's probably in my head because I talk about the wind tunnel. Um, so the army is really good about classes, right, Jeremiah? You know, like the, 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 these classes will drive you absolutely nuts. Uh, if you want to eat an MRE, a little meal in a bag, there's instructions. You go through the instructions, famously on the instructions, lean it on a rock or something, and then they put a picture for how you heat up your meal. It's like, oh, man, they're teaching to the very lowest common denominator. And it's like, so it can, like, drive you crazy. And so I, I'll just put it out, I really don't like jumping out of planes. I, like, I, I, I have not done it since I got out of the military. I don't plan on doing it. I have no, like, when I'm 100, I'm not going to go, oh, let's go jump out of a plane again. I, uh, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I love flying in planes, but I'd rather land in the ones I take off in. And uh, so, so going through both uh, types of 
jumping out of planes. There's static line. I'm not going to give the class uh, right now. But I remember like the free fall one in particular. And the reason the free fall course, that's where you jump out of the plane and you don't have anything that you're strapped into. Like static line, when you jump out of the plane, there's a little like cord that's uh, like carabinered in and it automatically opens the parachute. Free fall, you jump out of a plane. But even worse than that is you have to pack your own parachute, which just doesn't seem right. Like that, like, and so we're going through these classes about like how you pack your parachute. And I don't normally follow instructions, but I tell you, when they tell me that I'm going to jump out of the plane with the parachute that I jump out with, I was like, can we go back to step A? I just want to, can I get an iron to iron? I just want to make sure that everything's like perfect. And so I took all of the classes. I learned all about skydiving. I, I knew everything. That's Oida. Like, I knew the absolute facts. This is the kid that, you know, the, I don't want to, like, the young kid that knows everything, but he's never actually done anything. But he actually has all the facts about all the information that you need to do, know to accomplish whatever it is. But then it's a totally different experience. When you're at 13,000 feet, looking at the ramp and all the wind swirling, and you take that leap. So when I talk from that experience, that's a totally different sort of knowledge. That's, that's absolute knowledge, but it's also knowledge that's coming from a base of like, I've experienced this. And that's what Gnosko is. This is, a, this is a knowledge, it's an experiential knowledge. It's something that you can encounter. And so I went through that sort of extended explanation of these, uh, these two words, because these two words are going to play out. So when we look at this again, if you know Oida, absolutely truth, that he is righteous. So we know biblically, we we can know concretely, without a doubt, that God is righteous. He is holy. He is pure. He is undefiled. He is perfect. We know this with certainty. There is no question. You know, Gnosko, experientially, that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. And so there's a lot. There's a lot, there's a, there's a lot here. So we know that God is holy, righteous, pure, all of those things. Then there's, we can experience something from those that are born of him, that those that are a part of his family. And we'll get into this in a little bit. And so when I read this, I sort of think of like that, that phrase, the, the proof is in the pudding. You know, this, this is not saying uh, individuals who are perfect because the only perfect person is Jesus. You will never encounter a perfect person. You'll never encounter a perfect church. You'll never encounter a perfect pastor. You'll never encounter a perfect spouse. You'll never encounter a perfect child. It's impossible. But what I think that this is saying is you can experience sort of an individual that the Spirit of God is within them. And the the fruit of the Spirit manifests itself in their lives. Like before I was a Christian, like I remember experiencing Christians and like my gut for some of it was to like, I have this story and it's just like in my story that it's like, I'm like I don't don't tell it don't share the story, Gunner. Don't you? But it's it's the story that I got. It was my one of my. I was not a Christian at the time. 
I was, I, I was in Nevada with the military doing some work at a, a area, something out there. And yeah, a lot of stuff underground. And, uh, and, uh, but it was right around my 21st birthday. And on my 21st birthday, they said, hey, you guys can go the, the 100 miles drive south down to Vegas. And I was like, woohoo, 21, not a Christian, go to Vegas. And so I got to figure out how to edit this, this story. And, and so Gunner's like a little obs- obsessive compulsive at times. Like anything worth doing is worth overdoing. That's, that's, that's remained in my transform personality. Um, but I remember, so I had like a wad of cash, and then I had a designated wad of cash that I could use and play with. But then there was this wad of cash that like absolutely do not let me touch this cash. And I, I young gunner can't trust himself to put the wad of cash that I don't want to touch in my left pocket and the wad of cash in my right pocket. And then my my buddy was there that we went through training, and he was a believer, super like super man of integrity. And I was like, dude, could you hold this wad of cash for me? And he's like, he's like, yeah. And, and I'm like, no matter what I do, don't give it back to me. He's like, I won't, dude. Like, you can trust me. You'll have to fight me. And I'm from, I'm from Wyoming and you're not, you're from San Diego. You're not going to be able to like, <laughs> like, like he was like this cowboy, you know, like, and I was like, okay. And then I had the audacity to look at him like, you're not, well, after he said that, I'm like, you're not going to steal it from her, are you? And he's like, dude, I'm not going to steal your money. Like, I'm a believer. Like, like it was, and it was like in that moment, there was something about this man that, I, like, that was pure and right, not perfect, not sinless, none of that. But I experienced righteousness in a way that was different, in a very like, you know, 21 year old gunner way. And I kind of think that this is like, you you know, that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. And I do think that there's something like we have our like spidey, like you encounter a person, they could be super straight laced, like wearing a suit and tie, walking around with the King James Bible, saying, no, God, I represent God. And you're like, like, something about this guy just doesn't feel right. Or you can encounter somebody and you can go, I can just tell that this individual is righteous. And we're not saying that person is, is sinless. We're not saying any of that. I think he's saying that the proof is in the pudding. That when you encounter those that are born of him, you can tell. And this whole idea of being born of him, this is first mentioned, we don't have time to go look at John chapter 3, but in John chapter 3, the the writer of this letter is the same guy that wrote the Gospel of John. There's a story in John chapter 3, we're in the middle of the night. This religious guy approaches Jesus, and he says, I have some questions for you. And so he's kind of on the other side. He's, 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 he's on the side of the team that's been persecuting Jesus. And, but, but he, in his heart, it's like he believes. And so he sneaks out. He goes to Jesus, and he says, I need to talk to you about some stuff. And Jesus sort of says this phrase, like, unless... You're, you're born again, lest you have been born of God, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And this religious leader rightly, or I mean, rightly, uh, understandably might be the better way to say it. He says, okay, now when I was nine months old, I was born of my mother. Like I was in her womb. I came out of the womb. How am I supposed to be born again? Like, 
how am I supposed to like re-enter the womb and to have a round two? And Jesus looks at him and he's like, oh, brother, like you're, you represent the religious leaders of this day and you can't even explain these concepts to know like the spiritual mind. And so this whole chapter, Jesus, Jesus is the one who sort of coins this concept of being born again. So you cannot be a Christian without being, being born again. Like if you're a Christian, you're born again. I remember as a young man, I remember hearing somebody identify themselves as a born again Christian. I thought that was like a Christianity that had like a splash of alcohol in it or something. Like I wasn't quite sure. Like it just, it, it was odd. I wasn't raised in the church. And so like I, I just remember it was like I was at some event. I was probably like 12 years old. I, he was an African-American guy, super nice guy. I, like, I think he was doing reggae music. Like, I don't even remember that, but I just remember he identified himself as being a born-again Christian. And it had this, like, like this seed was planted in my brain that was like, what in the world is he talking about? Swindoll on this says, but John's point goes even deeper. Those who are born of him are those who, who have genuinely experienced regeneration by grace through faith. They are thus declared righteous and are spiritually united to Christ by the Holy Spirit. So when we encounter Jesus, when we hear about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and we say, yes, I believe that Jesus did and die, he died for me. And I believe, we're told at that moment, the Holy Spirit indwells us, seals us until the day of redemption. And at that moment, you're born again. And in sort of layman's terms, that means that you're adopted into God's family. You're welcomed in with full privileges, full rights. It's, a, it's, a, it's an overwhelming thing. And so then in chapter 3, verse 1, he then sort of like expands on this thought, and he says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. And so this first, see how great a love. I love it when I encounter that I've like, they're always very distinct to me, but I've, I've had the pleasure of, of sort of like talking with a lot of different people who know Jesus and uh, these, these encounters with individuals who, for lack of better terms, because of the way my mind thinks they're, they're more advanced in the Christian walk than I am. They've been walking with the Lord way longer than I have. And I have so much to learn from them. Every now and again, I'll encounter one of these people and they'll be like, man, God has just been teaching me some like really deep stuff. And he's been working me. And I'm just like so in awe of, of the, this truth that I've come to like realize. And it's like, oh, what is it? Like, you know, you figure out like who wrote Hebrews or did you figure out like <laughs> pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pan-trib, like it'll all pan out. Like, and it's like, the, the encounter that I have with these individuals, I've been walking with the Lord a long time, they're like, I've just been struck with how much God loves me. Like, it's like the light bulb of his love for them has impacted them in some, like, new and, like, overwhelming way. And it seems to be that this is what John is saying. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that God loves us. These, this is the advanced course. This isn't, like, Christianity 101, and we're to move on and away from this. This is like 
the mystery of God's love for us is so profound. How can it be? I think of the psalmist. I should have written it down, but there is like, there is a wonderful psalm. I think it might be Psalm 38 that says like, who is man that you would consider him? And that John wants us to mature in our relationship with Christ so that we would become overwhelmed by this great love that he has for us. I think of those cold, crisp mornings when you wake out on a clear day and it's like super freezing, but I don't like really want to put on a sweatshirt, but the sun is out and you can kind of just feel the sun, that warmth. And it's like, that's the picture of what God's love for us in this world that can be really, really cold. He then continues and he says, uh, for this reason, the world does not know us, gnosko, experientially, because it did not know gnosko, knowledge experientially, of him. So Guzik on this says, ultimately, we should, exp- we should expect the world to treat us as it treated him, rejecting Jesus and crucifying Jesus. While it is true that Jesus loves sinners and they, recognizing that love, flock to him, we must also remember that it was the world that cried out, crucify him. And so when we look at this, he says, listen, the world didn't know him. And so don't expect the world to know you in this way or to understand the way you think, the way you do things, why you would do whatever it is that God has called you to do. Uh, I think so often we're surprised when the world is sort of shocked and we want to sort of like bridge the gap and say, oh, this is why we do this. But it's until the person encounters Christ in this way, they won't experientially know God in the way that you know God as one who is born again. And then he says, we know, oida, absolute truth. We know that when he appears, so John has all of these, like he hasn't experientially experienced the return of Christ. He does know that last encounter back in Acts chapter one, as Jesus floated away, two angels showed up and said, hey guys, get about your business. He's going to come back just like that. And so John knew, oida, absolute truth. There was no question in his mind that Jesus is going to return. Whether it was going to be two weeks from that moment or 40 or 60 years or 2,000 or 4,000 years after that, he doesn't know. He just knows absolutely that Jesus is returning. We know absolutely that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And if you spend time with Jesus, Jesus will absolutely change you. There is no way around it. You can date and dabble, but as you encounter him, as you walk with him, like anybody else that you spend time with, he changes you. He changes your perspective. He changes how you think that you should respond about things. You do things your old way, and then he convicts you for like the thing that didn't bother you a year ago. Now suddenly it's like, I can't believe I just did that. And so he says, we know that when he appears, we will be like him. So when Jesus returns or when we go to him, we will be like him. And we'll be like him because we will see him just as he is. And like like all I have in my notes is it'll be like super caffeinated. Like if we experience him now and we become like him now, then it's going to be like drinking a monster drink or something. Like I don't know, like, like now as we spend time with him, we become like him. But when we see him without these bodies in our new bodies, free of sin and stain, and we see him fully revealed, 
there's going to be a change, and it's going to be super change. But then I'll just leave it at that. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him, if you write in your Bible, I would circle the has or has this hope. So everyone, the people who have this hope, what hope? Back to verse 2, when he appears. The individuals who have the hope that Jesus will return and they're fixed upon him, purifies himself just as he is pure. And so this goes back to the saying, the, the then should affect the now. Knowing the reality that one day each of us is going to stand before our creator, whether you're saved or unsaved, each of us is going to stand before our creator. If you're unsaved, it's going to be an unpleasant encounter because you're going to realize what you've rejected and you're going to face the consequence alone. For those of us that have come to the realization and understanding that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, that Jesus was our substitute, he stood in our place to absorb the wrath of God, and that we responded in faith, not that we did anything, we just simply responded to the gift that was laid out before us, then we're going to stand before him and give an account. Not sort of in, I've said this a bunch of times, I can't, I can't find a better illustration for my, my thinking but I just see it that there's some big VHS tape up there of Gunner's life. All the bad stuff will be gone, and I'm just going to sort of watch the rerun of my life, and I'm going to see the opportunities that God gave to me and how I responded. And there'll be blessings for opportunities that I missed. I think there'll be sort of something, like something for opportunities that I missed, I don't know. I'll tell you when I get there, but but you'll have experienced it. So you're like, I will need to know. Like I, but all I know is from this point, that reality that one day I'm going to stand before my, my creator that should affect how I, I live today. Um, and so what do we do with this? Like, I think number one, like, like God isn't done. Like we can look around this world. We can look at the news. We can get really discouraged. It can be really like frustrating, the reality is our hope isn't in the now. Our hope is in Jesus and in the future of what he's going to do. He's coming back. Like, that's a reality. I don't, I'm not going to splice and argue. I certainly have, like, my feelings and my convictions about when he's coming back. But none of that matters. What matters is that he is coming back. Like, that's, that's what matters. And based on this reality, the, the, the ultimate question that anyone in this room can answer is, like, do you know him as your savior? Like, this is like the, you know, when I was a kid, there were these books, Choose Your Own Adventure, like, this is, like, the first choose-your-own-adventure on, like, page three. Do you know Jesus, or do you want to know Jesus? If yes, go to page 62. Okay, we're going to go over there, and we're going to play out the story of knowing Jesus. If you don't want to know Jesus, go to page four, and then live out that story. And that story ends poorly. Like, I watched it, I lived it. And I eventually went back to page three, started the book over and said, let's do this other page. Let's try this route. But the reality is like whatever blessing we have in this life, even knowing Jesus, ultimately it's about the next life. And so if you know him, the encouragement here is to like press on, keep, keep, keep it on. Like know that he's in control. The only command in today's section, and, and really I think it was like the command in last week's section, is to abide in him, hold his hand, walk with him, stay close to him. And we, we, we do this through the spiritual disciplines. You do this by like opening up your Bible and reading a little bit of the Bible. 
saying, Lord, help me to understand what's being said here. And this is like, this is a dangerous quest. I started reading the Bible in 1996. I said, I have a whole bunch of questions about Christianity, so I'm going to read the Bible. And when I read through the Bible, all my questions are going to be answered. (laughs) So I started the one-year Bible plan, and three years later, I finished my plan. And I mean, that's how it always goes. And, And so then I'm like, man, now I just have more questions. And then I learned about that there's like something called Bible college. So I took one, like two classes in Bible college. I'm like, oh, I'll take these, a New Testament survey, Old Testament survey. I do these, all my questions will be answered. <laughs> then that led to more classes, that led to more classes. And then it was like, what are you doing with your life? I'm like, well, I'm a Navy SEAL. That's like, well, then why are you doing all this Bible college and seminary? I was like, I don't know. Uh, like, do you think you're supposed to be a pastor? I'm like, I never thought about it. I didn't think so. And then I met Anna and I was like, I kind of think you're being called to be a pastor. I'm like, oh, I didn't see it that way. I like, this is kind of, this is really nerve, like, but it's like, as you read your Bible, that you're reading your Bible leads you to talking to God, Lord, what's going on here? And as we pray and communicate with him, we listen for his answer in his word. Hopefully you're gathering with his family on a regular basis. Like if, if COVID taught me anything, it was the value and the call that we as his children are to be gathered together, come rain or shine, not to quote the post office, but like, we're so, like, this is a priority. Like what we're doing here is important because we encourage one another. We help one another. We egg each other. Or it, I think it's or like prompt one another, but egg each other along. Like we call each other out when we start to drift. Like it's super important to be in community with one another as believers. This is how we grow. And then as we serve, as we get involved, he works in us through our service. All right, I'm going to end. I forgot to stop the clock, so hopefully I'm not too late here. Hopefully we're right on time. According to my watch, I have like another 40 minutes to go. Um, uh, (laughs) I want to end. (laughs) He wants intermission. Seventh inning stretch. Okay, we're going to see play ball. And I do want to end by reading one little phrase of a hymn has been on my mind uh, this week. And I think that this hymn sort of like encapsulates sort of uh, uh, abiding with Jesus. And the hymn goes, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his goodwill, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. Father, we pray that you would help us to trust you more and more each day. We are grateful for this time that we have with each other. We ask, Lord, that uh, wherever each person is amongst us, in their journey with you, whether they haven't come to the place where they have understood the gospel in in an experiential way. Father, I pray that whatever things are holding them back, questions, concerns, doubts, that you would help these things to be resolved so that they could respond to you in faith and that they could receive the Holy Spirit and be born into the family of God. We thank you for this great love that you have bestowed upon us. Father, the world offers so many temptations. Our flesh is so prone to wandering. We ask, Father, that you would help us to seek you, to crave after you, to long for you, to walk with you day by day, and that ultimately we would grow to be more like you. We thank you for your spirit's work in our hearts. We thank you for his leading. We thank you for his conviction of sin when we stumble. We thank you for his ministry of, of, of healing and re- reconciling us to you. We thank you for the truth that's found in 1 John 1, 8. 
that when we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to restore us to you. And so we thank you, God, that our relationship with you is based upon grace, that you have gone out of your way to provide intimacy in this relationship with you. We love you, Father, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.